Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, Episode 14, recorded and presented by Jason Morningstar at Metatopia 2012. So my name is Jason Morningstar. Uh, I am a game designer. I uh, am half of Bully Pulpit Games. Uh, probably our best known product is Fiasco. Uh, but I've uh, designed many other games. Uh, my most recent game is called Durance. And the, the sort of, uh, I guess the, the space that the, these published games occupy uh, typically are games that are GM-less or that distribute uh, Game Master Authority in, in ways that are uh, uh, unconventional, increasingly less unconventional, but uh, when people talk about GM-less games, which is a misnomer that we'll, we'll talk about, that's, that's an area that I'm interested in and that I, I, uh, I make a lot of games in. Not exclusively, uh, but uh, that's something that, I, that, that I'm interested in. So uh, let me ask you guys some questions. I'm interested in knowing what a Game Master does. What does a Game Master have authority over? What does a game master have authority over, Adam? Uh, schedule. Schedule. So, like uh, coordinating. Yes. Uh, so, so the social context of getting a game group together functionally. And I'm just being traditional. No, that's cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, by whatever definition, what else does a game master do? You're right. The, the, often they're the person who facilitates functional play for a group. Time management. Time management at, at the table. But I guess that's an extension of time management for a group of pe busy people. But certainly at the table, if you have four hours, uh, a game master, part of his job is going to be to pace that four hours effectively. What else? But I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a difference between time management and pacing, right? Because, sure. because the pacing has an impact on the dramatic feel of the game versus a, well, we've got to get through this scene and then get through this scene and get through this scene and get through this scene. You know, there's, you know it depends on how, how wide the pendulum swings from a sandbox look at time and, you know, to a more directive look at it. That's a good point. So those are two separate skills, right. perhaps. You could be good at one and not good at the other. And play balance to keep the players involved in the circumstance with it either letting them be underwhelmed where they always succeed or overwhelmed of everybody just rolled the most horrid die rolls in history and giving the circumstance should the world actually come to an end for those characters at that moment. Yeah, if it's okay with you, I would rebrand that as engagement, right? So uh, having your players be uh, engaged with the fiction that you're creating collectively uh, as much as possible around the table all the time. Uh, because I think if, if they're always getting their ass kicked, then the engagement suffers. If they're always getting easy victories, then, then that happens too. What else? Um, I guess, of course, it depends on the style of game, but I, I always likened it to leadership, your leading. By that, I mean... You're really listening and paying attention to the group and facilitating, of course, but getting the most out of them, making them feel free, open to Absolutely. express themselves as much as possible. Yeah, I think... Uh, really listening more than anything else. So, so a, a strong facilitation role, uh, bringing the best out of other, other people. I don't hear anybody talking about uh, running the monsters. Right? Oh, that's, that, that's something that a game master does, right? They, they create an adventure often. They, they uh, facilitate that adventure. Uh, they play the opposition. They, NPCs. They play NPCs. They create adversity. Some games, they create the plot. They create the plot, yeah, often. And that is uh, deeply satisfying. That is uh, very fun. I think uh, another really important element, at least the approach that, that I embrace for, for the games that I, I facilitate, uh, is success enablement. You know, the idea that regardless of the hows or the whys or the choices that are made, um, the story has to move forward, the clue must be found, right? The, the, problem needs to, the problem needs to be solved. Now how that happens, the pace with which that happens, the complexities and the challenges that are presented along the way, that, those are the interesting fiddly bits. But you know, when someone blows a roll, well, obviously, if that if that prevents them from finding the clue, you're stuck. So it's not a it's not a it's not a question of do you know do they or do they not find the clue? It's yeah, they blew the roll. So that means in the context of finding the clue or in the context of you know researching at the library, that means X. You know, and sure. and, and, and to be able to to 
narrate and interpret those results um, in, in a way that's that's fun and engaging. Right. So uh, how about who gets to say what and when? Is that a game master's responsibility? Sometimes. That's certainly a social contract issue, right? Well, we we at the table have to have to have a clear understanding of who gets to say what and when. Uh, and often that's instinctive, it's ingrained. We have a local culture of play that has a particular tradition, and so we know how to behave when we play a role-playing game. And I'll tell you from experience that that can be very different from table to table. Uh, but uh, the game master often is the arbiter of that. Adam, enough. We need to hear from this guy. Okay? Right? So as the game master, you can be like, tone it down. You've had enough spotlight time. We're going to focus on the thief for a while. That is, uh, that's a skill uh, and... Uh, uh, often uh, something that a game master has authority over. Something else that's related to that is uh, they have typically have the power to veto uh, creative contributions, right? So Adam, no. I pick up the can. No, no, you did not pick up the can. You don't have hands anymore, right? Do you remember? They're on my sheet. Yeah. You didn't spend the points for hands. Uh, but 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 seriously, that's a I mean that's a big part of the GM's job often is to moderate creative contributions because there's a shared artistic vision perhaps in a, in a play group, uh, and the majority of that is maybe coming from a game master, but uh, the players always are contributing, and the the GM typically has unlimited authority to say no to those. Uh, not always, but but quite often. Um, uh, so that's stuff that's related to the group. And think about the the task. The game master's typically the person who says it's time to go to the dice. So you're exploring the dungeon, you meet some orcs. Maybe you, want to, maybe you want to talk to the orcs, right? Maybe you want to sneak past the orcs and you're such a good thief that it doesn't require a roll. Well, that's kind of my call as, as the, the game master. Uh, I could say make a, make a sneak roll or make a diplomacy check or you know whatever's appropriate. Uh, I'll make another. Now make another and another. That's another issue, but um, <laughs> but uh, that that's something that uh, typically a game master has the ability to uh, to engage and disengage with the system. I could say uh, you meet a bunch of orcs and you say I want to kick their ass, and I say their asses are kicked. Moving on, right? And nobody's gonna typically no one's gonna question that. They're gonna be like, okay, the game master made a call. He thinks my guy's tough enough to do this. It is not a challenge. There's no adversity. We're moving on. And, and uh, you know, again, this is system dependent and also, uh, you know, player and social contract dependent. But can it's... Can you say some of that in that case is also, uh, like, genre emulation? It can be. Very much. Yeah. Very much. And that's something that, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 the game master is enforcer of tone. Right, right? exactly. Right? Making so, sure we're all still playing a horror game. Exactly. Or if we're a bunch of muscle-bound badasses, then those orcs are just the olive on the toothpick, right? We need to get to the dragon who's really going to challenge us. Because we, we know how to kill orcs. Um, uh, so, uh, so, you know, when we go to the dice, what dice we go to when we use them. Uh, Adam, you don't have hands. You have a minus three penalty. Do you want to argue with me? you got a minus three penalty. Uh, sometimes that's a, that's a very subjective uh, method of, of controlling spotlight and engagement. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, system mastery, because I know that in third edition, your circumstances incur a minus three penalty. Because I argued it's a minus four. Because you argued it's a minus four, which goes back to vetoing creative contributions. Uh, so that's something else that typically uh, you know, a game master is going to do. We're talking about the task now. Uh, of course, adjudicating outcomes. All this stuff is about adjudicating outcomes. Uh, which uh, uh, game masters do all the time. Uh, game masters typically represent the universe of characters and situations that you're going to encounter. Uh, literally, the universe in sandbox play, uh, and that can that can vary, but uh, uh, that is almost a, a constant. And also, how that universe reacts to the players, right? So this is a model, uh, the sort of the traditional uh, GM player model. Uh, but let's talk about what a game, game master never has authority over. You're shaking your head like the game master never has authority over nothing. Depends on the game, but in some places, the game master has authority over everything. Finally, right? Sure. Okay. A veto over every single thing. You guys agree with that? Some games. Say some games. Say anything. Well, yeah. Well, so, so but, tip, let's let's use Dungeons and Dragons. Sure. Okay, which is a which is a, a pretty good uh, model for this. Uh, any version, really. Um, 
the, the, uh, typically the character sacrosanct, right? Uh, that's, that's sort of a, a general baseline often. In the head of the character, okay. So if you, uh, what, what part of the character? You can cut off my hands. Oh, right, 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 right. But I can't make you fall in love. Without a spell that does so. Right, and without you being able to successfully make a resistance check or whatever. Right, that, that, that if I bring adversity to you, you have the opportunity to make a choice. Until the players cry foul. Until, which, is a, which is a really important point. So here's an anecdote. Uh, I was running a sort of steampunk, diesel punk kind of game, uh, and uh, I thought it'd be really cool if one of the characters, who was sort of an upright British hero uh, in the Victorian mold, got river blindness. Right, it's a degenerative condition. He's slowly going to go blind. That's just pure drama for this guy, right? It's going to totally transform his world. And I'm like, the doctor comes in and says, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Lord Kilbert, you have river blindness. In a year, you'll be blind. And my friend Patrick looked at me and he said, no, he doesn't. And I said, no, well, no, I'm the game master. He, he does, in fact, have river blindness. And he's like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> So at that point, uh, we've found a hard limit of Game Master authority, right? Because my Game Master authority ends with Patrick's consent. And Patrick does not consent to this particular fictional development. Who wins? My choices at that point are to say, awesome, I'm going to lose you as a player because you don't, you don't agree with the choice I made and you're going to walk, or I'm going to roll it back. And I'm going to retcon that and that particular thing, which I thought was very interesting and you thought was very not interesting, just doesn't happen. Uh, that's a true story, and it was, uh, it was actually shocking to me at the time, because I had never encountered that. And I had always just assumed, as the omnipotent game master, that what I said went. Right. And Patrick was like, no, what you say doesn't go. It goes as long as we're happy with it, but the minute we're not, it ends. And that was a, that was a revelation, and a, a good one uh, for me. So what happens when we give players a little agency in a road uh, authority? Uh, let's think about ways that you could do that. How about blue booking, right? Are you familiar with blue booking? The idea that uh, you encourage your players to write detailed backstory for their character or uh, discuss what they do between adventures and maybe you give them a reward of experience for that or maybe you just do it because it's kind of fun and, and interesting and it's a way to to encourage engagement and keep your players active even between sessions. Well, by doing that, you are ceding some of your game masterly authority. Just a little bit, but you're saying, make an interesting backstory for your guy. Tell me what happens in town between fighting the dragon and fighting the lich. And uh, there may be some limitations to that. You might have to have the caveat, and you can't kill any of my NPCs, and you can't become suddenly awesome. But within those boundaries, you know, tell us some interesting things, which I can then mine to make your life more exciting later on. Give me some flags of things that you're interested in that you want to see more of, or things you want to see less of. Uh, so that's, a, that's a, a very simple example of giving players a little bit of agency. How about um, fate points, hero points, uh, the drama deck in Torg, Bennies? These are all sort of metagame currencies. That are, that are essentially saying, here's a little bit of my authority and I'm giving it to you because you rolled a critical hit or because you did something cool or because another player has awarded it to you or whatever. Um, all of these are saying you, uh, you have a little bit of authority in this fictional world uh, where previously you did not. And uh, that's uh, it's completely outside the scope of fiction. It might be very, very uh, appropriate in terms of genre emulation but those decisions, decisions are not being made by the character. He doesn't know he has a fate point. You know he has a fate point, and you're going to use that to make him uh, really be great when it counts. Um, and so temporarily or permanently, players are going to take some control of some aspect of the emerging fiction, right? So uh, that's just a tiny bit of agency that you're, that you're sharing with your players at that point as a game master. And uh, if it gets crazy, if it goes to crazy town, uh, they're, they're, it's, it's very tightly delineated and you can reel it back in quite easily. You say fate points are like sharing agency with the players, but that's, isn't that functionally more like a reward? What I'm thinking about is experience points. I'm thinking about our experience points doing the exact same thing you just described fate points doing. Because if you focus on sharing agency, experience points aren't. But if you focus on the GM providing a reward to players for particular behaviors for full play, 
then they are doing the same thing. Yeah, no, well, they, I mean, they are a, a metagame reward. The character does not know that he just reached second level. Uh, but in terms of uh, sharing agency, I don't think they do. So are they a different category? Yeah, I think so. They might, might mean such things as like rewarding for role-playing skills. Sure, yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yep, theatrics is a good example. And remember, you can use fake points to do things like um, change what's in the setting. Yeah, yeah you can... You can uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a guy here and I know him. You know, you can... Uh, it's a point. GM's getting something back from that. Though. Well, it's a, a currency. Yeah. Good role playing, so the GM has presumably been rewarded by, previously rewarded by having seen the good role playing happen that he wanted that as players to happen. Sure, and, and so you can. There's, there's, a, there's an economy to that as well, where you're you know, rewarding the behavior you like. Yep, and that's a, a, there's a social economy always, right. uh, and there's a mechanical economy in a game like Fate, where, where you're giving and taking uh, your compelling aspects because you want to see something brought into play and you're giving your player a tiny chunk of agency in return. Uh, that's absolutely true. So let's get crazy here, okay? We talked uh, just just for a second about um, these, these essentially very minor ways that are, that are pretty easy to control in terms of sharing authority. What if things get weird? What if you had a game where uh, the game master had very little control over the task? Uh, the task being when we go to the dice, uh, uh, what we do with the dice when we go to them. Would that work? Yeah, it'll work. There's a game called 316 that does exactly that. And Misspent Youth. Misspent Youth, another great game that uh, are uh, all about that. And these, uh, some of these games that I'm going to uh, uh, shout out to are, uh, they're small press games, they're sort of weird games that are pushing particular envelopes, uh, and uh, that's a space where, this, where it's easy to experiment on a small scale with distributing authority differently. How about a game where the GM doesn't have much control over the group? Maybe none. Uh, the group being uh, the, uh, the fictional characters in this case. Uh, there's no, a, a game where it's impossible to say, you guys uh, go to town now. Uh, or uh, I'm thinking of Apocalypse World, right? This is a game where players have a huge amount of agency over a very particular uh, area that's traditional GM terrain. Um, how about a game where uh, the game master doesn't have much control over engagement, where uh, the it, where all a lot of the fictional content is coming from the players, and then the GM is building on that a game like Inspectors. Uh, these are all very functional games that work quite well, and that are just playing a little bit with uh, redistributing authority. Oh, how about a game where the GM has almost no control over setting and situation? A game called Amber. Might ring a bell, right? Um, again, that's a typical thing the GM owns, and that might be a weak example because there are many uh, sort of predefined settings that you might choose to play in, uh, Amber being a pretty monolithic one. How about a really, okay, okay, one more example of a weird way to distribute authority. Now, this is a game where uh, the GM does uh, pretty much all the GM things, but there is one person, a player, that... Uh, that uh, okay, so this player does all the player things for everybody at the table, all the other players most of the time, and there's a, a player who specifically is the group's record keeper, and uh, and also the accountant for the group. Uh, and there may, if you're really playing this game pretty hardcore, there might even be another person who's not a player and is not a GM, but just handles fights. Never heard of that game. It's called uh, Dungeons and Dragons, right? You've got the caller, the guy who is in charge of saying what the party's doing. You may have a marshal uh, for uh, fights, which is something that's recommended in, in uh, early editions of D&D. You've got a game master, and you've got a mapper. And those are roles that are codified in the game. These are, these are things they tell you to do and that make for a very compelling experience of play uh, that is really revelatory if you haven't done that since 1976. Uh, it, it actually is qu a quite functional way to play the game that people sort of discount. But it's weird. In, in Hackmaster, they even present it as getting separate shares of both treasure and experience in those roles. We played a very hardcore oh, interesting. game like yeah. that. And, um, so as a mapper, you're rewarded for that with extra loot? Yeah, and I actually deliberately positioned my character to be both the treasurer and the mapper and ended up with like two and a half shares of everything. <laughs> That's cool. But, but, but it, was that meta, it was that interesting meta interaction between the players 
and and it spilled into the game. You know, it sure. had oh, an yeah. impact on the on the character interaction. Yeah, which is which is that's that's super cool. Yeah, uh, that's neat. So uh, so those are some some games that I just kind of <laughs> mentioned that each takes a, a little a little slice of authority and and seeds it to the players in in a way. So what happens when you just throw it out? You just get totally, you, you go to wacky town, right? When you arrange authority in a really different way. Uh, I hope what I've shown so far is that each of these things is basically a component that is malleable, right? So you can, you can uh, change the way players uh, engage with system. You can change uh, the way uh, players, uh, all those things that I, that, I, that I mentioned. Each one of those is something that you can, you can adjust on a dial, essentially. It's not really voodoo. Um, you can, you can uh, tone all those things down so that there's equ equitable distribution, and suddenly you have a GMless game. Now, GMless is a misnomer. What you really have is a game with a bunch of GMs. Uh, that's going to appeal to players who like to be GMs, to be honest. Uh, uh, but it's it's not, you know, some kind of mysterious thing. It's actually, it's actually quite a, quite a natural way to uh, design, and in some ways a very easy way to design games. Uh, the things that you have to think about are, are different, but they're, uh, but but that distribution of power is not one of them. Um, but obviously you're going to miss some things, right? If you don't have a Game Master, a lot of those things that we said that the Game Master does, uh, they're, they're gone, right? You need to find a way to, to deal with them. Like pacing, right? Uh, being an editor, you know, a Game Master is often an editor. Like, okay, Adam, that scene is done. Let's move on, right? Uh, being a director, right? Reinforcing that unified theme or genre, which is super important. Uh, so if you have a group of people who all have an identical authority, how do you do that? You don't do it by having one guy who loves film noir and is giving you a film noir story to play around in because that guy just disappeared. Um, being a facilitator, right? How do you make sure that spotlight time is shared equally, right? I'm kind of a quiet player, and, and Patty is a total uh, spotlight hog. So she's going to just uh, take all the air out of the room if we don't put some kind of curbs on her. But there's no one to do it because the game master's gone. The guy who's like, shut up, Patty. It's Adam's turn. Just He's not there anymore. Uh, how about fairness, right? Deciding on outcomes, adjudicating, being a referee. Somebody's got to do that, but the game master just disappeared because we all have the same amount of power at the table. And also building a world and a situation. Uh, you've got six people at the table, but there's not someone who has crafted this epic story for you to explore, right? There's, there, the game master is part author, and that, that disappears when everything is, uh, is uh, leveled out. Now, uh, Something to keep in mind, I think, is that uh, you never need to level everything out. And in fact, that's often a poor distribution of, of authority. The idea that everyone has exactly the same amount of power and in the same ways all the time is uh, there are games that do that and do it pretty well, uh, but it's often not the best choice. Uh, there's nothing really unnatural about, say, uh, appointing one player the boss of a particular aspect that needs to be dealt with. Uh, so it, it, uh, my game Fiasco, for example, um, often a facilitator role develops organically because there's somebody who has system mastery that can keep the game moving and understands how things work. So when you're playing with new people, you're that guy because you know the game and it, it falls to you. You have no more authority than anybody else at the table, but you have a little bit more responsibility because you understand the system, you're communicating that to people, and you're aware of the pitfalls that may... That and may you spend half your time reminding them you're not the GM. Yeah, well, yeah. Then you have to let them know... What happens next? Right. I don't know what happens next. I guess we'll find out. Um, so, you know, that's, there's a bunch of stuff there that, that can be a challenge when you have uh, turned down those uh, authority dials across the board. And, and there are ways to deal with that. And there are ways to get to the good stuff that a GM provides without giving someone that role. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm down on GMs, because I'm not. Uh, I, hope that, I hope that sort of shines through my great affection for the role. My impulse when I design a game that sort of equalizes that authority is I, I love being a game master, and I want to share that with everybody at the table, right? The things that are fun about that, the inventive, spontaneous, improvisational pieces, the facilitation pieces, the creative pieces, I love all that, and I know that uh, my friends are really good at it too, and if we're all doing that, then the whole game, in my opinion, is often going to be much better. 
Uh, but that means I have to trust them. I've got to trust the people at the table with me, right? Because uh, when, you, when you don't have a central authority who can say, Patty, you need to stop that, right? Take a break because we don't have time for your nonsense. Adam, uh, you've been in the spotlight enough. There, there's, that person's not there. Uh, there need to either be systems in place, uh, which is difficult, or you need to uh, very much trust everyone not to be a dick. More so, I think, than in, than in traditional play. Uh, and there, in, in most GM-less games, if there's a, a person at the table who's determined to disrupt it, the game's going to break. Uh, and that's just, that's, don't play with that guy is, is an answer to that. Uh, often, that same player might be able to be managed in a game where there's a strong central authority, but you still don't want to play with them. So, you know. I, you I, end up playing with him anyway. You, well, because you, they, he's managed most of the time, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> You know, uh, and maybe that, that is a net loss for the whole game. Sometimes. So don't be a dick or it'll break. Uh, and I think that's reasonable. I don't think that, uh, I don't think you can design a game that's, that's uh, uh, you know, that's griefer proof. If somebody wants to mess with it, they're going to mess with it. And it doesn't really matter whether it has a GM or not. But not having a GM uh, incurs a, a vulnerability there. You, you, and you would think that if you have five GMs, you can solve problems better. Yeah. Better. Not so much. Uh, although it would be nice if that were true. And there are there are GMless games that have mechanisms in place to deal with them. And I can talk about some of those. Uh, but I'm just thinking of some some things that uh, that are truths about GMless play, or when authorities are more evenly divided. It can often be more demanding uh, uh, because you're on. You have to be on more of the time. If if you're my game master, the only time I really need to be highly engaged is when you're directly interacting with me. Uh, in a GMless game, I'm I'm always part GM and I'm always part player, so I have to kind of be on on task all the time, uh, which can be a challenge. It's often uh, because you have those additional uh, responsibilities, it can be uh, more demanding, uh, and it's not for everybody. If, if you don't enjoy that or if it exhausts you, then you know, play a different game because that's that's just the truth. Um, one thing that. Uh, that I find in a lot of GMless games, and well, a lot of traditional games too, but, but uh, typically in GMless games, uh, immersion is going to uh, be uh, subordinate to metagame concerns quite often. If you're someone who loves immersion, and you, you love to be your guy, and you don't really want the distractions of uh, system competing with, with that uh, unified vision, Many of these games won't work well for you. My Game Fiasco asks you to constantly assess uh, uh, factors that are way above the character's level, right? The character's thinking one thing and you need to be thinking another, right? Um, and uh, that's not for everybody. Some people don't enjoy that. If you love to be fully immersed all the time, then uh, GMless games probably won't work because they expect more of you uh, in terms of metagame. One thing you see in a lot of uh, GMless games uh, is our, our mechanical ways to, to uh, mitigate pacing issues. We talked about pacing. Um, so many games will, will be like, uh, this game takes place over 16 scenes. When we get to scene 16, the game ends, and here's the procedures for ending the game. That's how Fiasco works. Uh, and uh, what that does is it takes the pacing uh, uh, out of the hands of an individual and systematizes it. Uh, and that typically uh, works pretty well. Now, what you find is that it also sort of often forces games to be very focused on particular things. So you see a game like Monster 1244, which I highly recommend, uh, which uh, takes place over, uh, I don't know, 12 scenes, maybe 16 scenes. Uh, and those scenes are very clearly defined. You're going to go from spring to fall to spring again, and then the game is going to end. And uh, in each of those uh, phases, stuff is going to happen, but there's, you're not going to diverge from that ever. The game is endlessly replayable, but the, the pieces of it that are interesting are not the, the way that the game is paced and the way that the setting is presented to you. you know, the, the things that make it endlessly replayable are the fact that you have this intense relationship map and these very difficult choices to make uh, at the end of the game. Uh, so uh, you know, you're, it's focusing the constraints of play in a different area, right? Um, also, theme is something that needs to be reinforced socially rather than uh, through a central figure who's, who's sort of laying it out for you. 
So like, I'm playing an Adam's game, and Adam has said, we're, we're playing Midnight. This is going to be dark, and, uh, and uh, it's going to be scary, and in the end, we're going to lose, right? Uh, because the monsters have already won. Well, that's, uh, that's a tone and theme that uh, we intend to reinforce, and when I decide I'm going to play uh, the Happy Dwarf King of Light, Adam can be like, no, that's inappropriate, and that's not where we're going with this game. Try again. Uh, with uh, GMless games, there's nobody to say that except the other players. Many games have a sort of veto mechanic that uh, allow you to say that's not appropriate, um, uh, but it's ultimately a social issue. Right, you, you just need to trust your friends not to do that uh, and to agree that if we're playing a game that's all about uh, melancholy romance, that we, you know, we play melancholy romance as best we can. And I encourage you to. <laughs> um, uh, similarly to, to pacing, spotlight time is often apportioned equally. Right, It's my turn, then it's your turn, then it's his turn, then it's her turn, then it's back to my turn. Uh, 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 just as a sort of mechanical way of replacing uh, some of that authority that a game master would normally have. And the other thing that is interesting uh, is that uh, world building and setting creation are often systematized uh, through uh, semi-random or uh, roll and choose type mechanics, uh, providing you with a sort of rich uh, background and material from which to draw, but that is constrained in, in, in uh, precise but interesting ways. And this is really a, a throwback in many ways to what you see in, uh, in early games in the hobby, which had, you know, like if you look at the original Dungeon Master's Guide from AD&D, it's just full of tables. And those tables give you so much interesting stuff. You know, you can create whole worlds based on the, the, uh, the tables in the back of the DMG. And we've in some ways returned to that because it's actually a very effective and functional way of quickly... Uh, and precisely generating uh, setting material. So uh, you see in a game like In a Wicked Age, you have these oracles that are going to give you uh, bits of setting that are tied in with bits of character uh, in, in really evocative, cool ways that are, uh, are going to uh, completely inform the world that your game inhabits uh, and uh, can be very fun. Uh, and uh, you, you see that in uh, other games where you're, you're given choices to make that uh, affect color for example, in Apocalypse World, one of the things you have to do is decide what your guy looks like. And essentially, you're just circling options, but you're given options that tell you what a hardholder is like, right? And the hardholder, uh, th there's no option for a hardholder to be fat, for example. I, I don't know if that's true, but, but you're given three or four specific kinds of bodies a hardholder might have, and you're choosing one of them. And they're different from what an angel might have or a brainer. Uh, and they're all, uh, they're all going to uh, enter the fiction... Uh, based on these choices you've made uh, in a very simple and uh, elegant way. Um, so, so you still need to deal with uh, uncertainty and outcomes, right? And uh, in, a, in a game with a strong central authority, that's pretty easy to do. In, uh, in a GM-less game, it gets a little more complicated. Again, you've got trust, right? You're trusting the people you play with so that many of those same mechanics uh, for resolving uncertainty are going to be fine. But you also see a lot of stuff like um, consensus building, uh, where uh, uh, the uh, the decision might be based on what the group agrees on. Uh, in some in some extreme cases, very sort of dirty hippie games, um, you might see where there's some randomness, uh, where it's tasked to an individual. Uh, this is really cool. There's a game called Archipelago that I recommend. I'm in love with Archipelago. It's my favorite role-playing game, and. Uh, in Archipelago, uh, at the beginning of uh, a new game, you decide what the most important elements in that setting are, right? So, uh, so uh, we're playing in a post-apocalyptic world, and one of the things that is, uh, is incredibly important is the weather, which is crazy and out of control. Uh, as we play, uh, whenever the weather enters a circumstance, uh, whenever the weather is relevant, there's a player who owns the weather. Right, uh, and that can vary from session to session, but there's always somebody who's the boss of the weather. And in our post-apocalyptic game, there's always someone who's the boss of technology, and there's someone who's the boss of, you know, whatever these things are that we've decided are important. The boss of radiation, maybe. Um, and uh, when that comes up, that guy decides. That guy is the one who tells us what it's like. What's the weather like? What's it doing? How, what impact does it have on us? You're the authority that has complete control over the weather this session. Um, 
And so that person uh, is, uh, is in charge. Also in Archipelago, when you have a conflict, uh, you ask someone to, uh, to interpret it for you, interpret the result. So you basically are drawing a card that, that uh, tells you in very broad terms whether it's success or failure, uh, but then the interpretation is up to another player that you've chosen, which is, which is a very interesting social dynamic. Uh, and uh, I, I can't recommend Archipelago enough. So uh, do I stab Adam's character in the throat? Well, I'm trying to. Mm, I think that might not be so easy. Uh, I draw a card uh, and ask uh, Patty to interpret it. The card says, yes, but in the process of doing this, something is lost or destroyed. So uh, it's up to Patty to describe how I succeed in cutting his throat and also what it is that I've lost or destroyed. Probably my sense of self-worth and dignity because I just killed Adam. But uh, it could be anything, right? You asked too much. You ask, okay, and then in Polaris, another uh, uh, GM-less game, uh, there's actually, uh, this sort of problem is mitigated by ritual phrases. So, uh, Adam, I want to stab you in the throat. You asked too much. I, wait, let's, let's rephrase that. I stab you in the throat. Yes. Okay, so you're saying that I ask far too much? Yeah, okay. Um, and at this point, what, what's the deal? I can't can remember the yeah, it's, it's, it's but repeating that one. <laughs> but it's a, there's a series, <laughs> it's been a long time. There's a series of, but only if, yes, right? But only if. But only if uh, yes, you stab me in the throat, but only if in the process uh, your wife witnesses it, right? Uh, oh no, you ask far too much, and then there, there are a series of phrases, and you go back and forth until you reach a, a suitable conclusion for all the parties involved, uh, which, which means that you rarely get what you want, uh, but you get something more interesting, which is a compromise. Uh, you see that also uh, in in lots of games. The, the idea that um, you can take a strong position, but it has to sort of gradually be degraded. Uh, or Annalise, where several things are at stake, and you're fighting over them and deciding what's actually important. Yeah, Annalise, a good example. Uh, uh, of that. So uh, we can talk about some individual games that do interesting things. Uh, I don't know if that would be valuable to you guys. Do you, do you want to talk about games that uh, uh, essentially some GM-less games that are noteworthy and why they're interesting? We could we have uh, 20 or so minutes left. We could have a, or 15 minutes. We could just discuss this more broadly. I don't know. What, what, what are you here for? What would you like to hear about? All right, these two guys in the back, they're just here to check their email. Thank you. Right. Well, I'll, I'll throw a question. Sure, sure. Um, apart from the games you know about now, the ones that you know about in the past, what would you like to see, ideally, in GM-less games in the future? What do you think sites see as a possibility? Whether you're doing work on an hour, you know someone's working on an hour, how did it even happen? That's a great question. I, I think my answer to that is that I'm really excited about uh, many of these technologies that we already have becoming more and more seamless. And this, I think, reflects some of my interest in live action play. Uh, so I'm really interested in the, the idea of sort of performative play. And uh, so we look at a game like Polaris, which I think is from 2005, 2000, around yeah. that time. Uh, it, the, the way that Ben Lehman figured out that you could, you could have uh, conflicts without having a game master to adjudicate was to for very much formalize those conflicts. Um, and what you get is, is an elegant but very rigid and structured system for uh, negotiation. And from that, uh, other games built, uh, and uh, Polaris is an early GMless game, not as early as they get, but pretty early. And uh, uh, other, others have sort of built on that technology and made things a little smoother. If you look at Fiasco, for example, um, the ultimate goal uh, uh, in terms of the social space is that you don't need to interrupt role-playing to, to determine outcomes. What's really happening is that you and I are role-playing a scene, and I just pick up a die, and it's black or white, and that informs exactly, we, that's everything we need to know about how that scene's going to resolve. Um, which, which is a, a step in, in the direction, I think, of more seamless, uh, seamless play. And I'd like to see more of that. Um, I, I don't even know how to do it exactly. Uh, I think every, every project that I take on is exploring maybe a different aspect of that. That's one that interests me. How about you? Uh, I think the, the seamless is a great word. That captivates really well. I, I'd like both kind of both kind of polar opposites of the games in a way. The, the traditional GM 
set up, as you described, and, and the GM was set up where it's completely driven by the players. I mean, I like both. I don't have to one. I like both. Uh, that's what I like. <laughs> well, you think, you think about that. So with regards to role play, I, I guess the, in the case of GM-less role play, you have two genres within that. One is no math at all, it's all about the linguistics. And of course you have the, the side that most people are most familiar with is, now let us go to the charts of probability to see what the potential outcomes are. Um, where yes, there may be some linguistics within those charts, but you're rolling the multi-sided die in order to help direct the fates, so to speak. And do you see more of a move towards more of a linguistic play style, or still there's there may be the occasional need for the roll of the die? Uh, I think it's a con continuum, certainly, and even in a game like Polaris, which on its surface is very much uh, about uh, speech and negotiation uh, and description uh, and, and uh, putting the fiction first, there's, there's quite a bit of mechanical undercarriage there and stuff to keep track of in terms of uh, your, your knight's weariness and zeal, and there, there are numbers, and there are even dice that you need to roll occasionally. So um, uh, there, uh, in the GMless space, I don't... I don't know of any completely diceless games. Am I making a fool of myself? GMless games with that don't use dice at all. They have no randomizer, no Monsiger. Well, Monsiger well, though card draws are important. Right. Kinda in, in a different way, but those are actually re powerful resources, as I was reminded recently, uh, for uh, negotiating uh, the ownership of scene framing rights. Oh yeah, perfect. Right, penny for my thoughts. Paul Tevis's game, right? There's no randomizer in that game. Is that is that similar in some ways to uh, Baron Munchausen? Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah, Baron Munchausen. I think it's a, it came way before a lot of stuff, and people didn't know what to do with it. It's true. But it's it's still a. I said it was a power game, but then it's very much in the spirit of DMS role playing. Certainly. Doesn't have any dice. Yeah, I think you could embrace that as well. Obviously. Well, you can play Rocky and Bowling with the cards out. Yep. And that's, uh, I think a lot of people point to that as sort of the Ur GMless game, Rocky yeah. Bowlingle, for sure. So uh, that's a good question. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, I think that's what I would, I would say about it. Uh, you have a question? Yeah, yeah you've, you've kind of described um, authority as this fungible resource that can be shared and split up and you know, distributed evenly and whatnot. Um, is authority diminished by spreading it out? Is it is there synergy in having multiple people versus concentrating in one person? What, what do you think the play is? What do you give up other than immersion? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's well, uh, immersion is a good example of something that you give up or that potentially you're going to give up. Uh, so yeah, I think there are tons of emergent properties in in uh, different arrangements of, of authority. Um, the idea that uh, you for example, making each player responsible for a specific aspect of play. So that even something as simple as uh, you're the guy who brings snacks this week. Uh, you're the guy who handles conflicts. You're the guy who uh, is in charge of this other aspect of play. You're the guy who's always going to add, your job is to lay on color on every scene. You're going to tell us what the weather's like, what it smells like. That's your job. Uh, that, that dramatically changes the, uh, the experience of play for everybody uh, because you're you're doing something in a very different way than Fiasco or Polaris, where there's a, a pretty level division of authority, right? Uh, and very different from a game where there's a central GM who's supposed to be doing all that stuff. Um, they feel different, and they play different. And, and this goes back to your, your, your statement of a social contract between all the players. In some instances, you're dealing with players that already have been playing with each other for a while, so the social contract would be the point where a GM-less environment uh, is on the verge of occurring anyway yeah. because it's, it's mm -hmm. the recurring social contract so there is no need to squabble over what roles everyone is contributing to, to the experience. Sure. Whereas if you're talking about it's a catch-it-as-you-can experience, the infamous it's 
whatever night of the week it is at the game store, and in that particular instance, having a, a need of a GM per se becomes important, not so much with regards to the game is this night at this time every week, but more the aspect of, okay, either this is where we left off or here's the new scenario. Absolutely, and that's a, a, that's a, a very good point. And I find I run tons and tons of games at conventions with strangers. Uh, and when I am uh, facilitating a, a GM-less game, uh, I often have to take a very strong facilitation role uh, because that, that social trust isn't there. So they really do need someone who is paying attention to pacing and is paying attention to tone and theme and uh, all those things that a GM might normally do. And uh, I, I've talked about this in the past. It's not anything that's embarrassing. It's just something that needs to happen. You can't, somebody who's got some system mastery kind of needs to step up and take on a sort of a quasi-GM role. Even though within the, the rules, they have no more authority. They, you really kind of need that in, in a group that doesn't have high trust or that isn't comfortable with each other. I think uh, you'll see a lot of very functional games uh, or, or groups that have been together for many years that... Uh, essentially do this on their own, right? They, they're still playing D&D, &D, but their D&D &D is, uh, is something completely new. It, you know, it's, 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 it's unique to them uh, because that's the way they played and their play style has sort of morphed over many years into something very relaxed where uh, people do have control over multiple things. Everybody trusts each other with uh, authority and agency. It's essentially a, a game masterless game. And I guess in clo closing is, Griefer neutralization. Um, how, given the different uh, aspects of the social contract, what are some of the more successful ways you have seen people deal with griefers? Uh, yeah, Adam is, Adam is, for those of you listening to this recording, Adam is miming, shooting them in the head. Uh, no, no, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't want to play with those guys at all. It doesn't matter what game it is. Uh, there are games that can control that better. I think a more highly structured rule set with a, a single monolithic authority is going to be a better place to keep that person in check. Uh, but I, I don't ever want to sit at the table with one of those people. That's why I brought up the five gems versus one gym comment earlier, which is theoretically there are five people at the table who can tell that guy not to be a dick. Right. Nobody wants to, and it's the guy girl who is in charge of that game who has that terrible duty of dealing with the griefer. Yeah. And it's kind of convenient sometimes not to have to be the GM. Yeah, yeah, in those, in those cases it certainly is. And uh, that's But why? But really why? Why can't we all just step up? Well, it's, the geek, it's right? the geek social fallacy, right? right. We're all like, oh, well, he's got as much right to play this game as I do. But the other thing is, look, given the environment given to us by the double exposure team. Luckily, they do happen to have a, not only, well, here is all the things GMs are supposed to do, there, there is, the, there is the, the stated social contract also, whether it's on the website or, oh, by the way, here's, here's the pamphlet for this particular convention, that they do have some particular things that, hey, these are the things that if you do these, you are out of the con, no matter how much you paid at the door because you violated Sure. stated social contract. And they have, as a GM, they say, if you get one of these people, just come get us and we'll reject them for you, which takes a lot of the pressure off. And that's, that's, a, that's great. I was just thinking about your comment about groups that over time become their own kind of system in some ways. Uh, I did have a conversation with a guy who plays this group that's been playing for 20 years or so. They still have a format as a person who tells the DM what a group does, mm -hmm. and they all talk and they discuss things and so forth. But the GM is not talking to players, but he has no actual. Right. He can describe stuff and things and call out whatever you role, but he doesn't talk to them about their decision making. They have one person who tells the DM what to do. And they have a power structure in their group, which that's just fine. Like it's almost like that's just okay, we don't care. But it would drive me absolutely crazy. What's the power also? Yeah, the call up the veto what the group does. <laughs> oh, see, now that's dysfunctional and weird. And the DM could veto the call. Well, yeah, that's, I, I think that's, that's more to be expected. But I think the traditional 
But what is advocated in really old school D&D &D is that the caller says what everybody does, and if anybody objects to that, then they do their own thing. And that's, I think, the way people who play with that usually do. That sounds crazy. The, the, the caller could the be like, oh, no. It might work, I think, for Anyway. Yeah, and I think that, like, uh, you know, Gygax was playing with tables of 12 people, and that was sort of normal, so things developed that managed that information flow. And I've heard anecdotally, I haven't played with a caller and a mapper and, like, the super old-school stuff, but I know people who are doing it actively, and they say that it's great, that it works well if you follow the letter of the rules in, in those games. So it's just a piece of information. Patty, do you have a question? Yeah, well, I was curious about earlier, you were talking about the thing about the G GM full games, and it's, you know, it's games for GMs to play with, with other GMs. Uh -huh. and, I, and I don't know, maybe it's me being special snowflake or whatever, but that's really not my experience. Because I would say, I mean, I'll happily play or even facilitate a GMless game, but I don't really do a traditional GM thing. That's a, that's a good comment. I, uh, I think that my observation is just sort of more broad. I think that if you f find people who are really excited about uh, GM-full games or GM-less games, uh, that more often than not, they're people who love to be GMs. Uh, you are a special snowflake. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, there's a, a range of people who have their own reasons for finding them appealing. But, uh, you know, it, those games tend to do great when you have a table full of game masters. Do you have any thoughts on uh, the idea of, in the case of a game where you're trading roles from maybe week to week, uh -huh. from and some people really suck at some of the things, and others are fantastic at them, and it just kind of really hurts the game, the week so-and-so does such and such, and how do you deal with that? It's a social issue, right? I mean, they're, I they're, you can either have that conversation and that's... I mean, I mean, they're being a jerk, they're just bad at it. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, my, my advice would be to mentor them. Find ways to make them better. And if it's if it's intractable and there's just no improving them, and maybe that's the case, then that's a conversation you need to have or it's a problem you need to suffer through, it, it, depending on how your group interacts. If you if if that's going to wound a dear friend uh, to the point of them not playing with you anymore, then forget it. Suffer, you know. Uh, but if it's something where you can say, you know what, you're not that good at this, but we can make you awesome, and we're going to do everything we can to support making you better at this one thing that we all wish you were better at. Then that's great for everybody. Uh, and if it's a case where you can say, you know what, I don't think you're ever going to be good at this, but we would love it if we could just sort of skip you in the rotation and we would all have more fun. I, I think it's just a, a matter of trust and honesty at that point. Well, thank you very much. This has been fun. And uh, I'll be around all day today and tomorrow if you have more questions about this. Uh, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Jason.